Good evening. It's good to see all of you fine folks out uh, on this warm January night. It's good to be here. Um, so uh, tonight we have a lesson called Our Purpose, and it's an important lesson uh, because there's some folks that we're going to read about uh, throughout the evening who have misunderstood not just something, but our purpose. And Jesus is going to give them the opportunity to, to be set straight, but it's up to them on whether or not they're going to see it and say, oh yeah, I've, I've kind of I'm missing the, the whole point here, okay? So we're going to look at three different sections. Uh, Matthew 9, you guys have already read. Matthew 12, you're going to read tomorrow. We're going to look at one passage from Matthew. That's right. Yeah. I thought Thursday was... Oh yeah, no, Friday would be chapter 12. That's right. Okay, so anyway doesn't really matter too much. The point is you haven't read it yet. Um, <laughs> unless you're reading ahead, like I apparently am. Uh, you know, it'd be really hard to keep this particular uh, ball up in the air if I wasn't. So um, I guess be thankful that I'm, <laughs> I'm reading far enough ahead that I'm confused what day you guys are on. All right. Uh, but Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at a, uh, actually a couple passages from Matthew chapter 9 and, and one passage from Matthew chapter 12. Um, if I don't have a heat stroke by them. Um, so, well, I want to start with this, this parable. It's a modern day parable. It says the parable of the life-saving station. Uh, you've got it printed as the front sheet of your um, stack of papers that are stapled together, also known as a packet. Um, the parable of the life-saving station. Let, let me read you guys a little story. It says, on a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved, and various others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with the station, and gave of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, and new, new crews trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge uh, of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. The life-saving station quickly became a popular gathering place for its members. They decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club's initiations were held. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in several boats full of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were filthy and quite sick. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split among the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities due to their being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted that life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station Ultimately, though, they were voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of the various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station. And that's exactly what they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. How does this life-saving life station parable fit the picture of what we see in the, quote, church world today? Does it fit the church world today? Yes? Okay, now back to the original question. How? How does it fit? I guess if you see all the new, we'll call it newer buildings, bigger buildings, 
Sure. So building buildings uh, that are uh, larger and or they Dennis didn't say fancy, but let's uh, let's say they they take significant resources to put these buildings up. Um, they have comforts that detract from uh, the focus being on life-saving, um, to, to keep with the parable here, uh, being a life-saving station, remembering uh, what the church is supposed to be. What else? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely um, meetings and coordination that needs to happen uh, in this life-saving station as well as in this life-saving station. We need to meet together and talk with each other and care for one, one another's needs, but we need to make sure we don't become inward focused and we see a lot of that today where um, we get more focused on each other and um, you know hey what do we want what should we do uh, what would you prefer uh, talking to one another versus remembering that there's a bunch of people out there drowning in the sea of uh, life out here uh, that, that need saved and that's that was very vivid in the parable so that that's connected for sure to today's church world Yeah, they sort of had their own demographic in mind, didn't they? Certain, uh, certain groups, and we, we see that. Um, there are groups that will just go ahead and say it out loud. Um, with Honestly, I don't think they think it sounds wrong or wicked or anything, but they'll, they'll say, like, we are specifically, we are a church for X, Y, or Z. We're a church for Generation Z. We are a church for millennials. We are a church, you know, for this or for that. You also, don't get me wrong, let's not say it's just people going after young folks. There's also churches who will say, you know, well, we don't want the young people uh, because when young people come in, things change and go off course. And it'll be disguised as, well, it'll get progressive and liberal. Um, they'll say that because that sounds righteous. But what it really is, is they don't want young people in there rocking the boat, making waves and things like that. Yeah, uh, they're, they're, yeah there's churches that they want a certain type of people or kind of what you're probably saying more so there at least is a certain kind of person or certain types of people that they don't want. What else? Yeah, in life-saving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in the parable they got away. Yeah, it's very easy to kind of, uh, if we don't stay focused on the purpose, it's very easy to uh, look down at whatever project we're currently working on um, and, and not look back up again. And we see that in the church world today. We saw that in the, the parable of the life-saving station. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, there's a focus on materialism here. Um, and materialism will expand that to include, uh, like you said, even um, reputation and prestige and things like that. But, but definitely a focus on, on money and what money can get you and uh, how money is viewed, which would include the prestige and, and honor and reputation and things like that. Uh, we see churches that um, they'll say we want to be a beacon in our community. What they mean is we want to be the popular church in town be nice if they actually wanted to be a beacon like of hope like shining the light of God's word but many times when that's when that's uh, said out loud what they really mean um, you know it's more of a kind of a tagline on a church website <laughs> uh, more than a real uh, desire to share that kind of hope with with the community around them um, and and we see that kind of in this life-saving uh, parable as well, um, they were happy to bring in certain kinds of new members and ha still had initiations, still bringing new people in uh, 
to enjoy this nice, comfortable place they had and that they even protected from becoming less than nice or less than comfortable by building a new shower house outside so that everybody got cleaned up before they came in and all that. Yeah, anything else before we move on? Yeah, interesting little modern-day parable, isn't it? I, I, I like it. Um, I mean, I don't like <laughs> that it's, n- that really it's, it's negative and it's true. I, I wish that wasn't the case, but, but I like what it brings out for us. Um, it, it makes us kind of think. Uh, but the whole goal, and many of you have said this when you were giving your answer, uh, I should say goal, the, the purpose of um, this parable is for us to realize the problem ultimately is uh, losing sight of the purpose. Sure, they went off and they did this, and sure, uh, once they went off and did that, it became uh, this problem and that problem. They got focused on comfort. They got focused on, you know, hey, we don't want this kind of person in here. There were all these little things that happened, but it all came from uh, forgetting the purpose, right? Forgetting the reason they were there. Even people who called it to their attention and said, hey, we're still called a life-saving station we should be one then. And they're like, well, here's the deal. Next thing you know, they had voted and said, we're not going to do that. Totally, totally forgetting, uh, totally just saying, forget the purpose. We're not even concerned about that. We are uh, going to do what we want to do rather than what our purpose is, okay? Yeah, you've left your first love, right. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, we're warned of this multiple times in Scripture, um, it, but it comes up um, in our 90 Days with Jesus reading, obviously, as well, and uh, that's what we're going to look at here. Um, the, the first section is just entitled, Jesus' Purpose. We'll look at a, a couple others here uh, tonight, um, if time allows. Uh, but Jesus' Purpose, look at Matthew chapter 9. Uh, let's look at verses 9 through 13 to start with here. Matthew chapter 9, verses uh, 9 through 13. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are wealthy who need a physician, but those who are, or I'm sorry, those who are healthy. <laughs> it's not those who are healthy. I'm, I'm getting into a modern day parable now. Um, <laughs> I've not come to, to call the poor, but the wealthy. All right. It's not, Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus has uh, left an episode of teaching crowds uh, and, and healing. And he comes here and he... He's, so he leaves a crowd and now he sees an individual. And I think there's significance there. Jesus was not just Lord of a crowd. He wasn't just a teacher to a crowd. Um, a lot of modern preachers could use uh, this as a lesson for themselves. Um, don't just be teachers of crowds. Jesus wasn't just a teacher in the crowds. He was also someone who saw individuals. He saw people. He saw Matthew, someone who most people tried not to look at. Someone who a lot of Jews uh, had no desire to see unless it was just to get better aim as they spit at his tax booth because they saw him as uh, an agent of the Roman government because he was. Um, If you don't know, um, obviously the the ability to tax was uh, in this case under... Roman rule at this time uh, in world history, uh, the Romans are in charge, and uh, they're in charge in what is likely Capernaum here that we're talking about, and um, the way that that these taxes were always uh, collected was basically to the highest bidder. So someone would bid on being able to tax collect in this area. Well, you've turned it into a business, right? You're not just collecting what needs to be collected. You've turned it into a business. So you've got an upfront investment to get back, right? Now, we've all heard that uh, they would, they'd, they'd um, you know, gouge. They'd take more than they needed. Well, I'm not saying it was right, so don't misunderstand me. But one of the reasons they did that was because they paid big money to be able to, to go around and take up these uh, taxes. So 
here you've got someone not only with that motivation, but also, yeah, you have the ability to, to take additional funds because uh, you speak with the authority of the Roman government. You know, while they disrespected him, it was worse than just someone who had turned their back. It was someone who had turned their back on their people and they had the Roman government uh, as, as uh, kind of authority behind their words. So if they said you owed, you know, 7,000 bucks, and you're like, that's ridiculous. It, it can't even be 1,000. They're like, it says it's 7,000, and it's due tomorrow. You can't, like, you can be as frustrated as you want. You're going to have to pay the man, or you might have the Roman government coming and knocking on your door. So uh, this is kind of who, well, this is exactly who Jesus sees and is calling here. Now, uh, do you think that um, there may be some more to the story than just Jesus saw him, said, follow me, and he got up and followed him? Do you think Matthew had any knowledge of Jesus before this? Yeah, doesn't it seem, wouldn't it seem a little odd to the uh, intelligent reader <laughs> to, to think that he would just get up with no knowledge or information whatsoever and just follow him? Because either he had in himself some supernatural ability to read this man and realize that Jesus is, you know, something super special. Or, if it wasn't Jesus, it may have just been somebody else that day. He was just willing to follow any random person. Yeah, more than likely, we're in, uh, uh, that more than likely, Matthew is living in and working in Capernaum, which is where Jesus had been doing a lot of teaching, a lot of miracles and, and, and whatnot, where um, Peter, Andrew, James, John, all these guys that we just talked about uh, on Sunday, where these guys had come out of. And so, more than likely, he had heard a lot of Jesus' teaching had seen some of the miracles, uh, maybe had snuck away from his tax booth once or twice and gotten at the back of the crowd and, and seen some of the healing or heard some of the teaching. And so probably some of this peripheral information has just been uh, left out. But here he comes and he, he follows Jesus uh, nonetheless. We know that much, okay? Uh, something that's not in the Matthew account um, in perfect detail, but you see it uh, in the other uh, gospel writers who, who wrote about this. Um, Mark and Luke, they, they point out that Matthew threw this uh, little party for, for Jesus. Um, he, he set the food before Jesus. And so he's celebrating. But notice also he invites uh, some people to be here with him. These are not people who just roamed in off the street in all likelihood. These are people who he invited to the party. It was all for Jesus. But he invited uh, these other tax collectors. He invited the people he was friends with. Now, I think there's something there. There's a lesson there uh, that could be taught. It's not the direction necessarily completely that we're going in, um, but, but it's associated with Jesus' purpose. Um, here he brings more tax collectors, his friends. He, he comes out of the world, like we talked about on Sunday. He's, he's come out of his old life to follow Jesus now. This is the very beginning of it, albeit. But... He's also bringing his, his buddies with him uh, to meet Jesus, to learn uh, from Jesus, to sit with Jesus, okay? Um, and, and we're going to see that that's a real problem for the Pharisees, apparently. Um, let me see here. Is there anything else I want to point out before we jump into the questions? Uh, no, I think the rest is, is covered by the questions. So uh, let's jump in here. Uh, the first question says, what controversial things did Jesus do here in this text? I know there's a lot, but here in the text we're talking about. What controversial things did Jesus do that upset uh, the very conservative religious group called the Pharisees? What was he doing here? Association with uh, sinners, thieves. Um, yeah, and it says tax collectors and sinners, um, but thieves, it was a synonym <laughs> for them when it came to tax collectors. So uh, Earl's on point there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, and how was he associating? Because that's significant. He was eating with, right? Sharing a meal. There was an implied pledge in this culture uh, with, with Jewish folks especially. When you would share a meal with somebody, there was an implied pledge to be there uh, to help. There was a partner, an unofficial uh, kind of partnership implied by sharing a meal with someone. And so you had to be very careful who you ate with because if somebody knew about it, <laughs> you couldn't escape the, the, the understanding that, hey, 
you've got some sort of dealing. Like you are actually officially associated with this person. Um, not just, hey, I saw them with someone. I wonder if they just happen to be in the same place or if there's something there. No, they always considered it to be there's something there. And so for Jesus to do this, he was, um, he was participating in this. Now, here's what I want you to, to think about. Um, don't think that, oh, well, Jesus wasn't conforming to the societal norms here. It wasn't that, well, normally it always meant that you were pledging that sort of allegiance. I'm going to be with you. I'll help you in some way. Um, it wasn't that normally it was that. And with Jesus, he was like, no, 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 it's not all about that. He, I believe he was. I believe he was sitting with these people, sharing this meal, and he was associating himself with them. Because what did I say the, the, uh, the pledge was? To help, to support, to be there for them. Now, a lot of people would say um, that, a, some, well, some people would say that, that a person is defined by the company they keep, you know, or measured by the company they keep. And you say, well, look at Jesus, you know, look at the company he keeps, if this is indeed the company he keeps. Well, he is in this case, and he is making a statement uh, of association with them and a pledge to be support for them. Uh, a lot of big name folks would go after, um, you know, people of um, high reputation and status. Well, they're going to want to associate with people who can help them, right? Jesus associates with people who he knows needs his help. Kind of different. Right? Jesus, everything he did was a paradigm shift when it comes to how people looked at um, what, what status and, and power and ability uh, and all these kinds of things meant. Uh, Jesus didn't associate with people that could help him or help him climb the ladder or become more popular. Instead, people who were completely unpopular, tax collectors, thieves, <laughs> sinners, he associated with them pledging that he was there to help. And he said it himself, right? I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, uh, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a real statement being made there. And I know you've all heard it said, you know, that, uh, well, people say Jesus was friends with these guys and these guys and these guys. He wasn't friends. He just, you know, he just, he would help them. Well, yeah, but he did make a real bold statement in sharing meals with them. Um, I'm not saying these were like his closest inner circle buddies. Don't get the wrong idea. He wasn't, you know, schmoozing around and doing things he shouldn't. That's not what I mean at all. But do understand, Jesus was making a statement, for sure. I think sometimes it's associated likely with church discipline in Yeah, and in this case, they haven't even come in yet to be put out, for sure. So, so yeah, there, there's a church discipline aspect there where I can see the, the parallel. Uh, but, yeah, these guys, though, um, they're not even in yet. So, no reason to push these people away, but only to try to bring them in, to help them, right? All right, um, but the Pharisees had a problem with this. So they're kind of like, from the life-saving station parable, <laughs> they're kind of like the people who are like, you know, ooh, they're, they're dirty. You know, we just bought the new beds. We just put the clean sheets on, you know. We, we just put new carpet on the floor. We just cleaned the carpet, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And they don't want these people to come in. The Pharisees are kind of like them. They're like, uh, ooh, Jesus, you know what kind of people these are? You know, but it was worse than that because they weren't, they wouldn't just kind of like today, uh, most of the time that the modern issue uh, isn't a, you know, oh, no, 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 that's never going to happen. It's like, well, I don't know. What if we did this for them instead? Right. We, we kind of try to not make it look like we don't want them. The Pharisees were, were just all out, you know, very to the point. Those guys are not welcome. They are tax collectors. They are sinners. They are unclean. They are this. They are that. Uh, I can't believe, like, it tells me everything I need to know about you because you would hang out with them, right? I mean, they were in your face about it. Um, clearly forgetting the purpose. Number two, what did Jesus say he desired here? Verse 13. He told him, go and learn what this means. And it's, uh, it's a quote from the Old Testament, but it's his word. Yeah, so it's from Hosea 6.6, 6, but, but Jesus is the one saying it. So he's quoting Hosea, 
inspired by God, of course, so it all ultimately comes back to being his word, but Jesus is speaking it. So uh, when I say, what did Jesus say he desired? Jesus, quoting Hosea, is saying, I desire this, right? He says, I desire compassion. And who does he desire that compassion from? In this case, specifically, he's, he's, uh, there would be a appointed challenge to the Pharisees, yes. Would there be anybody else, though, that he wants compassion from? Would there be anybody he doesn't want compassion from? No. Jesus wants everybody to have compassion for mankind, right? Uh, that, that's part of his uh, purpose here is, is compassion. And um, there's specific uh, goals of this compassion. You want it to lead to a specific place, which is a uh, repentance and a knowledge of God and salvation. Uh, but compassion is how we're going to get there. Were the Pharisees winning anyone with this lack of compassion? No, all, all these people who were in need of a physician, were they getting the, the spiritual um, care they needed? No, because they couldn't even get physical association, right? They, they couldn't even get a, a meal with these people. They couldn't get the time of day with these people, uh, much less um, some guidance from them. They, they would not associate with them in any way. So uh, yeah, Jesus is wanting, he desires compassion. Number three says, what did Jesus say he came to do? It's right after his desire statement. Yeah, he came to call sinners. Uh, that, that's what he says he came to do. And so there he's, I mean, he's not been unclear, but there's, there's definitely an implication there that uh, these guys are not, a, not aligned with his purpose. The Pharisees are not aligned with his purpose. Uh, they're, they're completely against it. Uh, he's come to call these people. All right, now look at number four. It says, do Jesus' words at the end of verse 13, what we just talked about, indicate that he is not at all interested in people who live righteously? Because he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Does, does that mean that he's not interested in people who are living righteously? Yeah, yeah. He, this is a, um, it's a kind of a Hebrew way of saying things. They would say it in absolutes. Absolute negative, absolute positive, where we would make the statement in relative terms. We would say, I didn't come so much for the people who think they're already good. I came more so for those who know they need saving, know they need repentance, know that things aren't quite right. Like we would, we would say it more like that, but, but uh, these Hebrewisms, you know, however you want to say it, they would, this was common for them to, to say things in absolute ways. And the understanding was clearly uh, not that you mean definitely not righteous or even literally righteous. Um, you mean it relative, relatively, okay? Uh, number five, speaking of this same concept, so uh, number four said, um, does it mean that he's not interested in people who live righteously? Number five says, do Jesus' words indicate that there even are people so righteous that they don't need what he came to offer? Is that, is that what Jesus said? He said, I didn't come for the righteous. Does that mean there are people who are absolutely righteous and don't even need him? No. Again, we got to think about the, the Hebrew way of saying this in absolutes, where we would say it relative. Jesus isn't saying that he's not interested in people who are um, doing good things, okay? Living righteously. Uh, the Bible says uh, that there is none good, not one. The Bible says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? Nobody is sinless, so we know that. And then also, there, there's nobody so righteous uh, that they don't need what God has to offer, what, what Jesus came to, to call them to receive. Um, that's not what he's saying either. Number six, in this text, what did Jesus state as his purpose? So, so what is he getting at saying his purpose is? To call the sinner, not the righteous. Yeah. yeah. He came, to, oh yeah, after my wealthy comment. <laughs> Now I'm being tested. Uh, do not test thy evangelist, <laughs> for he may fail. 
<laughs> all right. Um, in all seriousness, um, if we look at everything he said, though, not just one statement, but the whole thing, when he says, um, so, so he's here, first of all, let's even look at what he's doing. Let's look at the fact that he is reclining at the table in a tax collector's home that was bought with, you know, Roman tax dollars that came off the backs of his own people, the Jews, okay? He's eating there with these people, tax collectors and sinners, who Matthew uh, might be using that ironically, um, you know, because um, this is what they considered them to be. This is what the Jews considered them to be. Uh, they, they considered them sinners, and that's what the Pharisees, that's the way they would look at them. He's dining with these people, making that implied, strongly implied association, pledge to help, to be there uh, for them in some way. And then when the Pharisees, unwilling to go to Jesus face to face, apparently for some reason, um, instead ask his disciples, why does your teacher uh, eat with these people, tax collectors and sinners? Jesus hears it and he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So his purpose is to help those who are sick. But um, what is the sickness that he's talking about? Well, when we get to the end there, that he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, the sickness that he's referring to is a spiritual sickness. It's the, the consequence that comes uh, spiritually as a result of sin. He's come to save people from that. His purpose is it, like the life-saving station parable. He's on a life-saving mission. His purpose is saving lives eternal lives, spiritually speaking, eternal lives. That's what he's here uh, to do. Uh, look at page three now. Let's talk about Jesus's desire here. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 now. Matthew chapter 12 starting in verses, verse one going to verse eight. Matthew 12, one through eight. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees, oh, they're here again. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he, that's Jesus, said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. All right. See any familiarity here? I mean, number one, Pharisees are here again, crying foul, trying to be the uh, religious police, which is... 100% what they thought they were. Um, here they are. Uh, I don't know if it's the same Pharisees, some of the same Pharisees, or a different group of Pharisees. Uh, I believe the word was out on the street among the religious elite and the Jewish leadership that, hey, uh, the goal is to try to trap Jesus in whatever you can. Like, we're all united on this. I believe very strongly we see that theme and uh, that uh, happening over and over again in Jesus's life. You're going to see it throughout the 90 days with Jesus. The Pharisees are just all kinds of places where you're like, what were they even doing there? You know, why were they there? Did they happen to be there? You know, a lot of, they were awfully present to not be, like, I can't stand Taylor Swift. You won't catch me listening to her in my car, right? That would be weird. You'd be like, why do you listen to so much then? Now, if I was trying to like, like if I was trying to prove to somebody else that they should also, you know, not listen to her music or something, I might listen to some of some research, right? That's kind of what the Pharisees were doing, only it wasn't research. They're trying to, trying to find any weakness in the armor, right? They're showing up at his concerts, though. They're showing up at his, uh, his TED Talks, his speeches. They're, they're everywhere he goes. Well, I, I think it's pretty clear. Words out. This is the mission. This is the goal. Catch Jesus. Make him say something wrong. Make him admit uh, that he's done something against the law, uh, guilty of, of death. Uh, let's, make, let's make him, uh, let's get him caught in the act where we can be justified in punishing him uh, with death. 
Let, let's try to find it, catch him in the, the wrong words or the wrong act, doing something he shouldn't do. And, and the Sabbath seems to be a, a good one for this to revolve around because the Sabbath was such a huge deal to the Jewish people. It set them apart from all kinds of religions in, uh, that were around them, that they had the Sabbath to their God. It, it was a huge deal. Uh, they had built all kinds of additional laws, uh, written all kinds of additional laws around the Sabbath that God never gave. Um, they had defined terms around the Sabbath that God never defined uh, that were uh, assumed to be pretty common knowledge, but instead they had said, you know, oh, well, um, picking grain could be harvesting um, and um, rubbing it in your fingers uh, could be, um, what's the word? It's threshing is, is clear in the floor, isn't it? Or is that the... I'm forgetting my terminology, but, but yeah, th they would basically say this was all part of the, the, the harvesting procedure. You, you harvested and, you know, they even I think if they said you know, if you blew the, the husks out of your hand, that that would be considered threshing, you know, cleaning all, out the, the, the floor and everything. Like it was a whole big like they were ridiculous what they had done around the Sabbath. And so here they see an opportunity to, to catch him and his disciples uh, in, in doing something they shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. Now, this was their opinion that this was something they shouldn't be doing on the Sabbath. This was not something that was against the Sabbath law that they were doing. Um, and it wasn't against any kind of law. They weren't stealing or anything like that. Uh, but, but let's jump into the questions here and we'll, we'll explain some more of these things as we go along. And number seven says, what were the disciples doing that the Pharisees thought was unlawful? Yeah, yeah. So here they are going through these grain fields on the Sabbath. It says, his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. I think it's, it's either Mark or Luke. I think it's Luke that, that talks about how they were rubbing them in their fingers, you know, and eating the grain. Uh, but, but anyway, the, the idea and probably the reason Luke or possibly Mark <laughs> um, add that detail is to kind of point out this is what the Pharisees were um, kind of jumping on is that they're working on the Sabbath. They didn't think they were stealing. Okay, this was allowed. Um, uh, actually, I guess, uh, look at number eight. It says, did God's law delivered through Moses, so talking about the old Mosaic law, forbid what the disciples were doing? Uh, if you look at Deuteronomy, um, I can read it to you, or you can flip there. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. Oh, that's why. It says here, and there's no additional qualifications as far as the day of the week or anything. It says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 24 and 25, when you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied, but you shall not put any in your basket, right? Now, you see some compassion, like we talked about earlier. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Um, you see some compassion there because this is your neighbor's vineyard, not yours. And in the law, which was supposed to be so strict and so hard, it accounts for, hey, don't put it in your basket. You don't fill up to go home. But if, if you're hungry, like eat the grapes you need to survive. And then verse 25 says, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain fields, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So don't go harvesting crops and load up, you know, a wagon full or anything, but you are allowed to do this. Now, there's nothing there or anywhere else that forbids doing this on the Sabbath. And, and you know why I think that probably is? Because it's clearly not work. You know, I, one of the universal signs for uh, luxurious living and relaxation is what? You know, uh, you got a thing of grapes and you're, you know, you're sitting there eating the grapes. Well, here we have, you know, eat, yeah, <laughs> you're sitting there eating the grapes. You know, well, I know it's, we're talking primarily about grain, but in the same verse in Deuteronomy, we're talking about, hey, the, the, the grapes, the grain, whatever. Don't go, don't go out there <laughs> with the sickle and the standing grain and, and don't take a basket. You know, it, it's not a you pick produce farm, but by all means, if you need something to survive, the law is not to prevent life. 
or, or the, yeah, the law is not to prevent life. The law is not to, to make things difficult for you. The law is not meant to stand in the way of your, your livelihood or your, you know, your, um, your health, you know, your ability to, to continue and have sustenance and survive. That, the law is not supposed to uh, cause you to die unless it's because you sinned and deserve it. You know? um, so there's not any law that would ever say, if you are in a bad spot, hey, make sure you don't break the law to survive because that'll make it even worse. No, death would be worse in all cases. And so it's silly to say that, that this, is, this is wrong. But, you know, the Pharisees were known to be a little bit silly uh, when it came to the way they interpreted laws and, and made up laws and added to laws and defined words that uh, weren't actually defined by God because they were already clearly defined uh, in their own uh, understanding uh, among the people in that day. Now, uh, number nine, Jesus brings up a, a story here um, to bring us to the attention of these Pharisees about David and eating the consecrated bread. Number nine says, why did Jesus say it was not lawful for David and his companions to eat the consecrated bread? Do you guys know? I listed several scriptures there for you. Um, the first one, two, three, four are uh, telling about the, the law itself. And then the last one, 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 10, is actually that event told in Scripture when David went uh, to Abiathar uh, or Ahimelech, however you read it, um, to, to request the bread and to receive the sword of Goliath and all that stuff. Um, we're not going to read that tonight necessarily, I don't think, unless we just desperately need to. But I've put those scriptures there so you can look them up. Do you guys know why Jesus would bring up a story here? Why he would say that it is not lawful or it was not lawful for David to do what he did? Hmm? The bread was for the priest to eat. Why was it not lawful then for David to eat it? He was not a priest. He wasn't from, uh, from Aaron. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. He was not a priest. He was not to eat that bread. But remember what I said before um, about the, the idea that the law wasn't to prevent your well-being. It wasn't to make life hard for you. It wasn't, um, it wasn't ever meant to prevent your survival. You know, again, there were things punishable by death, so the law might cause you to die. And now, really, it's not the law's fault. It's yours for sinning. But the law, none of these laws were to be, to be obeyed in such a way that it might cause a person, you know, to, to starve to death and, and die. Um, and so that's why Jesus brings this up. He's like, you guys who love Abraham and David and all these heroes uh, from your, your past. Um, you remember what he did? I don't remember you having such a problem with him, right? He's like, remember when he ate the consecrated bread? Because that was a, a hero's story. He's on a special mission and, and he's trying to survive King Saul's, you know, chasing him, trying to kill him. And he's the anointed uh, king, the, the, the king to come once Saul's out of the picture. Um, and he's trying to survive and he needs the bread and he needs to go be reunited with his, his men, his valiant warriors and, and keep surviving. And he needs food for him and for others. And so he comes to the priest here and asks for the bread and, and the priest is like, well, I'm not really supposed to give this to you. Um, where are the guys with you? And he's like, I, David says, I sent them somewhere else. They're, they're somewhere else. Don't worry about them. Do you have five loaves of bread? And he's, he's like, well, I do. How about the men? Have they kept themselves from women for a while? And he's like, yeah, of course. We've been out in the fields. They, they haven't seen a woman in days, you know? And he's like, okay, fine. Here's the bread that I have, you know? And he went ahead and did it. Now, he still wasn't supposed to do it. I mean, according to the law, he wasn't supposed to do it. However, clearly this priest and David too realized that this is not an instance where the law needed to be obeyed to the letter to where David would go without sustenance, to where his men would go without the food they needed, to where uh, he might uh, stick around too long, waste too much time, and Saul catch up to him and kill him, and then God's anointed king wouldn't ever get to take the throne. It would go against God's will, all right? Um, that brings up the question, though, that has to be asked, and so I put it here, number 10. How is what David did any different from Uzzah and the upset cart? Or Nadab and Abihu with the strange fire? Remember Uzzah? Remember the, they, were, they were carrying uh, the ark on a cart? 
And he reached up and touched it and was struck dead right then and there. Remember Nadab and Abihu who um, offered the strange fire? Uh, I'm sorry, I laugh every time because whenever dad... I'll get a text from dad. Hey, we're having a, having a bonfire, having a fire over at the house. Or, but he won't say it that way. He'll text me. We're offering up strange fire tonight if you want to come over. <laughs> you should probably stop saying this, dad. Anyway, it's, you know, got to love those Bible jokes. Um, anyway, well, they didn't do things the way God prescribed and took, started their own fire instead of taking God's fire. How is what David did, since it was unlawful, how was it any different than Uzzah. Why, why wasn't David struck dead, do you suppose? He wasn't commanded not to eat. But eating that particular bread was not lawful. Matthew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so um, I, I would agree. I would agree. Um, definitely one difference is the fact that we've kind of got a life and death thing going on here. Nadab and Abihu, was their situation life and death? Nah, they were just like, hey, we should just start our own fire. Why do we have to go over there? You know, I don't know if they talk like that, but you know. That was, there, was no, there was really not even any implication of, a, of um, any threat to their, their well-being other than what they chose to do. <laughs> what they chose to do was an imminent uh, danger uh, to go against God's law just knowingly and just because they felt like it. Um, but what about Uzzah? You know, we, we say that, well, Uzzah, you know, he was, he didn't want the ark to fall, you know, and it was such a, well, also not a life and death situation, but what else was an issue there? Yeah, what did they put it on? But what does the Bible say it was put on a new cart. A brand new cart, right? It's like they want it on the Price is Right or something. Um, they put it on a new cart. They didn't have the priests carry it the way it was supposed to be carried, did they? So it should have never been like this in the first place. And so I don't know if you want to call that David's fault, you know, the leadership at the time. If you want to call that Uzzah's fault, you know, he shouldn't have been in the parade, you know, participating and what they were doing that was wrong. Whatever the case is, everything there was wrong. They, they weren't even moving it the right way. And so when he reached up and touched it, um, even if he thought it was a great reason to do it, the whole thing was a mess. And, and God punished him for his wrongdoing and sent a message throughout the whole rest of the congregation of Israel at that time, right? So it's not life and death in any of these, these cases like it was for David who was trying to survive uh, Saul and his army chasing him. And he was already God's anointed king. This was part of God's will for him to survive and to ascend to the throne eventually. Uh, it's a totally different situation. And, and then also there's the fact that, uh, like we said with Nadab and Abihu, uh, they just... Uh, well, I'm sorry, um, with Uzzah, in his case, he was participating in a, in a whole process that was wrong. A every bit of it was wrong. And while his seems like, oh, well, Nadab and Abihu were just reckless, Uzzah was trying to do something good. Yeah, but he was caught up in the uh, wrong situation from the beginning. It just, it wasn't the way it's supposed to be. All right, so, so understand these differences. Uh, so number 11 says, with all this in mind, what then is the greater desire of the Lord? And you can see verse, see in verse 7, uh, it's also in Hosea 6.6. 6. Yeah, the greater desire is compassion. And so when someone needs to live, um, you know, somebody comes in here scandally clad into this building and we're like, oh, oh wow, okay, all right, you know. And uh, what do they need to do to honor God? Well, they need to put some more clothes on, right? They need to follow him and respect, you know, uh, his, his word and uh, modesty and all. They, like, they've got some things we can see that need fixed. But you can also see the ribs and they're filthy and they say they don't have anywhere to stay. Should we say, well, we're not doing anything until you get some clothes on? No. So how's it different? It's not, right? We'll, we'll get to obeying the law here as quick as we can. But right now, they need compassion, right? Right now, that person needs help. 
Okay, we'll, we'll get to the sacrifices. <laughs> we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get to the law of God. We'll get to obedience to the commands. We'll get to all the particulars about sound doctrine and everything else. But right now, that person might need a t-shirt and a pair of pants and, and somewhere to stay and some groceries, right? So uh, th- that's just uh, one, uh, one little example. You could think of a lot of others, I'm sure. Let's go to this uh, last page here real quick. It is lawful to do good. It is lawful uh, to do good, it says. Look at Matthew chapter 12, uh, continuing on uh, here, verse 9 through 13. It says, Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Again, Jesus kind of has this theme. People, people want to accuse him. They want to catch him. Verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There's just point. Verse 13, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. These are Pharisees here that we're dealing with. They questioned Jesus. They were asking so they might accuse him. They are the Pharisees again. Pharisees are here accusing Jesus. Why did the Pharisees think Jesus shouldn't heal on the Sabbath? Like what was their, what was their good reason for it? I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what did it say your to do on the Sabbath? What does it say you should do on the Sabbath? Rest. Keep it holy. Do nothing. Uh, also another way of saying rest. <laughs> uh, yeah, rest. Do nothing. What, what does it say you do not do on the Sabbath? Work. Yeah, don't work. Do all your work in the six days and don't work on the seventh. In what in what book and chapter? Are you in Matthew or Exodus? Matthew chapter twelve. Right. The, the same. Yeah. Jesus is bringing up what they're accusing him of. He's saying, "Well, hey, the same thing you're calling." work. Yeah, he's comparing it here. So, so there's, there's my answer in a roundabout way. I'm asking what, why did they think Jesus shouldn't heal on the Sabbath? They believed he was working, right? They believed healing was a work. Now, I know it's real easy to say this because we've got Jesus' words and we don't, you know, we don't live by the Sabbath anymore. Uh, we're not, um, we're not under uh, that old law, bound to it in that way. Um, but what a silly way to view work. Like, do you see how, let's get back to this purpose idea. Do you see how far departed they have become from the purpose when they can say, why are you healing on the Sabbath? That's work. You're doing a work. I mean, healing someone. Yeah, right. <laughs> But, but they're accusing Jesus of doing it. And, and they're saying, you're working. Is that even, how do you get to that mindset? Where someone could be healed. L- let's make it modern. Let's, let's, just take, let's just take the big scary cancer. And let's just say, someone's got cancer and they could be healed on the Sabbath. And somebody says, boy. I'd like to let you do that, but I'm going to have to stop you right there because that's work. If that could be done, someone could just do it with a touch or with a word like Jesus did. 
who in this room would say, well, they've got a point. Not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Nobody. The Pharisees had, this wasn't something you just, you didn't just read the law and go, hmm, yeah, I guess probably can't do that. No, this is a, this is a mindset that gets practiced and groomed and, and you work your way into this mindset. This is deep into, like you become a Pharisee and you go so far down that path that you finally get to the point where you see even healing as work that should be punished if you do it on the Sabbath. And that's why Jesus lands on it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. He's, he's saying this isn't work. I'm doing good on the Sabbath. But he also brings up the really practical uh, thing about the, the sheep, right? Look at number 13. It says, what point was Jesus making in verse 11? He said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Right. And, and do, you, do you think the Pharisees would have, if they had a sheep, do you think they would have pulled it out? Yeah. I would imagine so. And if any of them wouldn't, it might only be because it was one. They, they, they probably had a rule. Well, if three or more fall in, then I need to do that because there's, there's serious um, you know, economic, agricultural value there that, that needs to be um, understood and needs to be uh, preserved. You know, it affects the whole economy, really. You know? Like, I'm sure, they ha yeah, I'm sure they had a whole thing built around it, but more than likely, you know, I, I, I jest, more than likely, um, one sheep, because that's what he says. One sheep, will he not take hold of it? And I'm not just messing around with the English version. This was written, in the Greek, it's written singular. Jesus is pointing out, if just one of your, let's say, 100 sheep fell into this pit, 99 are fine, but one falls in on the Sabbath, you're, you're still going to get it out because there's value there, right? You have this sheep for a reason. It's other than the, the story that uh, Nathan told uh, David, I don't think too many people kept sheep as pets, right? There was, a, there was a reason for this sheep to be around. So there's value there. And Jesus says what? He says, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? Right? So, so if you're going to save a sheep on the Sabbath, because you're probably going to go, well, yeah, there's value there that needs to be saved and preserved. And, you know, that's an asset of mine. Of course, I'm going to get the sheep out of there. What about a man who's not an asset, who, who's not something, not property of yours, but is, is, you know, God's creation and is more valuable than a sheep? It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And so 14, number 14 says, why did Jesus say it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Um, I'm going to kind of fast forward this one for you. He said it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath because he's already told this um, um, Oh, I'm sorry, they're, they're asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he's like, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, right? Because when they say, is it lawful to heal, what they're saying is, is it lawful to work? They took his word and defined it as work. And he took his word and defined it as good. That's what he did there. <laughs> and so that's why he, he used the lawful in there. He's like, yeah, if you want to talk about what's lawful, let me tell you what's lawful doing good is lawful. You know, I, devire, I desire compassion and not uh, sacrifice. You know, we're back to that. We're back to his purpose. I've come to, to heal those who need uh, healing, those who need a physician, the, the, the sick who, who need the physician. I'm here to call sinners, not, not righteous, not those who, who believe they're righteous and don't need me, you Pharisees. <laughs> those, those were the people who didn't think they needed Jesus because they were already righteous. They already we're doing what they needed to do, right? So the conclusion there, number 15 says, if we're following Jesus, who desires compassion to be shown to sinners by doing good, what should our purpose be? To be compassionate by showing, by doing good to sinners. Showing compassion to them. Um, being there, uh, pledging to help them, right? Being willing uh, to not build a shower house outside so that they can get cleaned up before they come in, but, but to go out where they are in the filth of sin and to bring them in and, and help them in the process of getting cleaned up right here in the midst of the sheepfold. 
right? Right here in the congregation of the Lord to let Jesus cleanse them spiritually and, and we'll take care of the shower and the clothes and the groceries and the spiritual food as well. We'll, we'll teach them and, and, and lead them in that way and counsel and advise and be there to support. Uh, we'll, we'll eat with them like Jesus did. We'll dine with them. We'll pledge that kind of support, that kind of, um, uh, that kind of help to them. We'll, we'll be there for them. That's what Jesus did here. Wasn't just Lord of the masses and teacher of the, the crowds. He saw individuals. Um, he saw individuals who were hated uh, by, by the masses and said, you know what? I see the potential of this person. I see the value of this person. And, and I'm going to go to them. And I'm willing to risk my reputation for them because they're that valuable. I desire compassion. I know this guy's done wrong. That's okay. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. It, there's one of those absolutes again. It's not that he doesn't, that he didn't want the sacrifices uh, under the old law. Th that, that sacrifice is really a, ter he's, he's really encompassing the whole law when he says and not sacrifice. He's saying, I desire compassion more than the sacrifices of the old law. And that's not to negate and say that those weren't necessary. Uh, that, they, that he didn't want those things to be obeyed, but that the whole point was that you would learn about sacrifice, that you would learn uh, to be compassionate, that you would understand uh, what happens when, when, when sin happens. There, there's going to be a, a death. Blood will be shed. You know, to, to understand and learn these concepts. And so if you don't get the compassion part and all you've got is, well, I know all the right sacrifices to make and I know all the laws forward and backward and I, I've obeyed every single one of them, but you don't understand when compassion is needed and you, you don't have any understanding of, of when you need to show mercy and give a little grace and forgive somebody but before they deserve it, you've missed the whole purpose. And so our purpose is Jesus' purpose and I put there at the end as a reminder, remember the life-saving parable uh, because that was a, a great little story about uh, people who lost their purpose. And we all seem to agree that it's a, a pretty, um, pretty accurate mirror image of a lot of the, the religious world or the church world today. And so uh, it's not some far-flung thought. It's what we see actually going on. A lot of churches have lost this purpose idea. They've lost this compassion idea. And so you've got people off the deep end that have their, their doctrine wrong and uh, they've lost their purpose that way. You've got people over here who are all about the letter of the law, making sure uh, that, you know, these people do this. And I saw that person in that pew doing that during this or during that time. Or somebody was praying and they were doing this. We were taking the Lord's Supper and they were doing that. Right? You've got this letter of the law group. It's like, look, compassion, guys. Compassion not sacrifice. Doesn't mean we don't obey. Doesn't mean we don't learn. It doesn't mean that we uh, get rid of any of God's laws. But it means we got to understand compassion it prevails. That's what it did with Jesus. Okay, Compassion prevailed. And we've got to understand it and not lose that purpose. Because that's, that's the whole reason Jesus came. We didn't deserve it. He had compassion on us. Over and over we see it in scriptures. Jesus seeing the people had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Distressed, dispirited, and he wanted to be there for them to provide what they needed. All right, uh, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for this 90 days with Jesus challenge that uh, we're all participating in. And uh, we're so thankful to be able to spend these uh, 90 days with your son, uh, not just in the stories, but uh, being in his life, walking through uh, your son's life here on earth together, reading all the accounts uh, that were written uh, from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke, and from John. And uh, God, it's, it's so powerful what's been uh, read and studied here tonight and uh, there's so much more that could be uh, unpacked here so many more details that are significant and could be pointed out and uh, time tonight just doesn't allow for it so uh, God I, I pray that as we uh, read as we've read some of this and we'll read the rest of it here in a couple days uh, together uh, I, I pray that we would we would dig deep and we would dive deep and we would slow down and read these things um, 
not with great speed and not in haste, but with a desire to understand and to really soak in all the details, to, to smell the air uh, there where Jesus was and to, to hear the, the hustle and the bustle and the, the words and to, to hear the gasps as they saw uh, people being healed and uh, words of authority being spoken by Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to understand the scriptures like we never have before and to grasp details that uh, we may have missed in the past or have glossed over. Lord, uh, we ask you to help us to understand, help us most importantly uh, to apply uh, again in a way like we've talked about tonight that demonstrates compassion and an understanding of our, our purpose, which is your son Jesus' purpose, which he, he could not have demonstrated more clearly. It's just up to us whether or not we have the humility and the mindset uh, to be able to see it and uh, to be able to uh, have that same attitude, that same mindset, the mind of your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks. We'll see you Sunday. Sunday.